So we are going to be uh, talking about discipleship this morning. Now, discipleship is, is one of those themes that just kind of rolls off our tongues so easily. We often say it and think about it and talk about it um, without really thinking about what it means on the ground. And yet, actual biblical discipleship, the kind that Jesus requires, is anything but a flippant calling we just kind of file away in our life uh, of priorities somewhere. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Let's turn, well, maybe you already have Matthew 16. We are going to read from 24 to 28. Be paying uh, careful attention to verse 24 this morning. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here we find the Christian discipleship manifesto, if you want to call it that. Specifically in verse 24, we're presented with a sequence. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All who want to be disciples of Christ have to first deny themselves. Then, freed from the burden of self, we have the freedom and space to take up our own apportioned crosses Carrying that cross, we are then in a position to follow our cross-bearing master. The title for this message is The Welcome Weight of Discipleship. And I've chosen that title carefully because I want to communicate two things. First, to follow Jesus is to take on a weight, a burden, a responsibility. The call of Christ on your life, Christian, is nothing less than this. Bonhoeffer called it uh, a call to come and die to yourself, to the world. And we're going to get to what Jesus means by that in a minute. And we do a disservice to the gospel and a dishonor to Jesus and a dishonesty to individuals if we lay out discipleship as anything less than that, anything less than a weight. Uh, Leon Morris, commenting on Jesus' words here, says, we minimize the force of Jesus' statement with sayings like, we all have our cross to bear. Jesus was not talking about minor discomforts. Those who heard him utter these words knew what taking up a cross meant. They knew that it was a prelude to that person's crucifixion. Jesus was speaking about a death to a whole way of life. He was talking about the utmost in self-sacrifice, 
a very death to selfishness and all forms of self-seeking. So I want us to leave with new and renewed awareness of the weight of discipleship, but I don't want us just to leave with weight. I don't know about you, but it seems like there's a whole lot of crushing weight surrounding us right now, threatening to overwhelm us. We know they won't, finally. There's a way to talk about discipleship that is crippling, that piles on obligations in a way that isn't life-giving, but life-taking, life-stealing. So if I want to first leave us here grasping the weight of discipleship, I want us secondly to leave here seeing the cost of discipleship as a welcome cost, as a, as a welcome weight, a weight that won't crush us, but that will instead liberate us as Christians, as the church, in the life and mission that God has called us to, a weight that won't leave us regretting anything, even if and when it costs you everything. It is a weight to bear his reproach. It is a weight to follow Jesus outside the comfort and convenience of Jerusalem to the hard road of Calvary outside the city. But it is a welcome weight because it leads to a reward, to a weight of incomparable glory. We better not mistake the costs of discipleship. We better see them in all their temporariness and in all their usefulness for freeing us from the traps that would otherwise destroy us. And I'm praying that we will see the goodness and joy of cross-composed weight this morning. Like Samuel Zwemer, who in 1897 set sail with his wife and two daughters to the Persian Gulf to work with Muslims in Bahrain. In July 1904, both their daughters ages four to seven, would die within eight days of each other. Nevertheless, 50 years later, Zwemer looked back on this period and wrote, the sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly would I do it all again. There is no shortcut for would-be disciples. There's no life hack for discipleship. These three gates, denying ourselves, Taking our cross, following Jesus, are gates that every Christian must walk through to follow Christ. And these three gates are really three messages. But today, for a little while, we're going to look at self-denial. What does it mean when Jesus says here, whoever would come after me must deny himself? So a definition. Self-denial literally means a refusal to recognize oneself. If you're a member of a parliament and you want to debate an issue, you need to stand up and the speaker then has to recognize you before you're allowed to speak. If you aren't recognized, then you can't speak, unless of course you're in the House of Commons, in which case you can just stand up and shout whatever you want all at the same time. Applying that analogy to self-denial a kind of catch-all definition would be a refusal to give self a voice where it concerns a particular indulgence. Case in point, we went to one of my favorite restaurants a while ago, Swiss Chalet. 
My wife thinks it's pretty lame, but there you go. After eating the half chicken dinner, a little flyer catches my eye. It says, I now have the option of purchasing eight oven-warmed donuts with the glaze uh, for dessert. Now, I am sorely tempted in that moment, and yet I deny myself. Why? Well, because something in my brain, that little voice, says I shouldn't be paying $12 for eight donuts that I really don't need after a half-chicken dinner. Now, that kind of self-denial in God's common grace is something that everyone, Christians and non-Christians, can exercise to some extent. People do go on diets and put money aside for college savings and generally obeyed speed limits. And there's laws in place for those who don't want to do those things. That kind of self-denial is what we might call two-dimensional self-denial. It's denying a certain temporal pleasure in hopes of receiving a different temporal pleasure, one we receive to be greater. And just on a basic human level, that can be a good and admirable character skill. And we're going to suffer, and we are suffering as a society, as an increasing amount of people see self-denial and self-sacrifice as something categorically bad. But for the Christian disciple, self-denial takes on a three-dimensional quality. It stretches It grows much bigger than just exchanging one fleeting pleasure for another fleeting pleasure. We might give a specifically Christian definition of self-denial as the refusal, the putting off of whatever is going to hinder and weigh us down for pursuing the greater joy of following Jesus. And one important thing to remember about Christian self-denial is that, rightly understood, it shouldn't seem like self-denial. It should seem like the most reasonable, wise, rational, best decision you can make. Self-denial for the Christian is a refusal to settle for the rags of temporal rewards, even though rags are easy and cheap and to instead pursue the true and weighty treasure of eternal life with Christ. We see this in Abraham, who in obedience to God, left all the comforts of home to be a nomad in the wilderness. Didn't know where he was going, just picked up, left. Why? Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for a lasting city. It didn't matter that he lived in tents because he was traveling towards that permanent city. It's not poor, misguided Abraham. It's wise, clear-sighted Abraham. We see it in the life of Moses, who we're told denied the passing pleasures of sin, the power, the wealth, the learning, the opportunity available to a Pharaoh's son to instead suffer with God's people. Why? Hebrews 11, 26 tells us that he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. We see in the life of Stephen, a promising, young, eloquent, 
powerful deacon, a bright light in the early church, not afraid to tell the truth to people who really didn't want to hear it. And you read about his final moments in Acts, where he was given a view so compelling, so much more compelling, that whatever his life could have amounted to, he didn't care about the sharp stones when the crowd started throwing them. He didn't care about his premature death. He didn't have any regrets. He sees Christ, one glimpse of Christ, and everything else just melts away. And kids, young people, middle-aged people, if we want to get to our old age and have no regrets, we need to make Stephen our role model. How many people come to the end of their lives with so much regret? It doesn't have to be that way. In one sense, self-denial comes down to a simple cost-benefits analysis. Would you prefer the lesser now or the greater later? Now, that sounds a bit mercenary, but listen to Jesus as he sums up the essence of Christian self-denial in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying, better to suffer through life with one hand or one eye than to forfeit eternal life. Better to suffer without for a little while than forever in hell. But self-denial isn't just a matter of, of practical wisdom. It isn't just, where's the biggest prize? I'll head for that door. It's also a matter of obedience, and this is, this is important. Christian, did you know that Jesus makes demands of us this morning? And not just Christians, of everyone. Piper wrote a great book called What Jesus Demands of the World. And yet the world at large, many professing Christians view the demands of Christ as at best optional. And at worst, infringing on what we believe to be our inalienable right to do what we want, when we want, how we want to do it. I think for many, if we're honest, if it came to a tug of war between Jesus' demands and our desires, our desires would win too much of the time. Jesus, how dare you make demands of me and my time, my resources, my family, my plans. I'll tell you, Jesus, what I am and am not willing to lay aside to follow you. We're forgetting something when we do that. We're forgetting that Jesus is a king. It's right in Revelations 19, 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That means that the imperative here in our passage must deny himself isn't just a beggar pleading. 
or a would-be leader cajoling. It has the authority of lordship and kingship behind it. Jesus, as the king, has the ultimate right to require whatever he wants of us. And we, every one of us here this morning, can obey him or not. But what we can't do is just sit at the back of the class and pretend his demands don't apply to us. Or hope Jesus doesn't notice us. So how do we get here? How do we get to the point where we see self-denial for the welcome weight that it is? Well, we need to start with praying that the Spirit would open our eyes to show us where we're holding rags, where we're holding riches. That isn't just a throwaway preamble either. Christian self-denial is the most counterintuitive thing you could attempt. That ability to see following Jesus for the privilege it is doesn't come about through natural sight, just through willing ourselves to see it. It is a gift of of God's grace and the Spirit opening our eyes and softening our hearts. And so with the Spirit's help, here are three biblical principles that should hopefully help clear away a few branches and rocks on our path to self-denial. First of all, if you're a Christian, self-denial starts with reminding yourself that we have already died. We've already died. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. The foundation, the first step towards self-denial is to realize that our old man, our old woman, the old Christless, short-sighted, self-sabotaging part of us with its passions and its sinful desires has been crucified with Christ. We talked about self-denial as the refusal to recognize legitimacy of self's voice. Well, this verse in Colossians is the most fundamental reason why we don't have to. At conversion, the authority of sin and self has been overthrown, kicked off the throne, and replaced with the rightful authority and rule of Christ. It means that when our old man is sitting in the third row, straining with his hand up to be recognized so he can try to whisper some more lies to us, we can totally ignore him because he no longer has a seat at the table. He no longer has authority. That is the truth. That is the reality of what is if you are a Christian. Does it always feel that way? No, it doesn't, especially if self has been on the throne of our hearts for a long time and is used to being appeased. After the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, which stated that the America's 3.5 million slaves were now free men, there were still a number of slaves who were afraid to leave their slavery. Why? Well, because of 
the residue of that past authority still existed. Neither party felt easy living in the reality of post-emancipation America. Everyone had become comfortable living in that dysfunction. And anyone who's had the unfortunate experience of living under an abusive, powerful authority figure can relate to the struggle of trying to live on the other side of it. Even if you're older and stronger than them now, those old ways of interacting are still very potent. What to do? Well, for any slave who wanted to live in light of who he was rather than who he had been, all he had to do was read the proclamation. Maybe pin it up on his bathroom mirror. Whatever he had to do to remind himself of the way things really were now. And as Christians, maybe we could do that with Colossians 3, verse 3. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, that's where you are. That's an amazing thing. Hidden with Christ. Out of the reach of self, of sin, of death, the most secure place in the universe, in eternity, a refuge, a strong tower. That is your reality. Not the anxieties and fears of the future. Not the wily deceptions of the flesh. It's important for us to realize that when Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves, this is, this is important for us to remember too, he's not just calling us to leave one good shepherd for another good shepherd. He's calling us to leave a tyrannical slave master who wants us dead in favor of a good shepherd who will lead us on good paths besides still waters and in green pastures and in whose presence is the fullness of joy and who has shed his own blood for our souls. There's no contest here. But we forget that sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we're deluded into thinking the old man has our best interests at heart. And for too many Christians, the voice and the authority of the old man is just allowed too much weight, and he just drags us around. We need to remember that no matter how much the old self might scream about being denied, no matter how excruciating that denial is in the moment, your courage to go forward to leave whatever it is you have to leave behind is going to come about as we remind ourselves of what is objectively true. We died and our real life is hidden with Christ. We are safe and only safe in him. If you're vague or unclear on that relationship, on the kind of transaction that happened at conversion, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light, if you're unsure as to what that event has to do with your present obedience, you're going to be bluffed by sin and self every time. There's no halfway house allowed between life and death. Imagine if Jesus had only given up half of self. What if a part of him, while he was carrying that cross, looked back to Jerusalem? 
and the ease it offered rather than the cross he was now carrying? What if a part of him recalled his former glory in heaven and decided this whole propitiation thing isn't worth it? And he just dropped the cross and ascended right then and there. But no, Jesus supremely embodies the denial of self in his own death. That's the pinnacle. We see him in the garden crying out, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup, this terrible mission be taken from me. The very human side of him is not anticipating being a wrath bearer. And yet he denies himself for a time, equality with God. He denies himself being crowned king of the Jews. He denies himself the legion of angels at his disposal. He denies himself vindication before Pilate and Herod. The call of Jesus is a call to come and die to self. Not just in the act of of torture or martyrdom, at least not yet, but in all the little deaths that might be required of us throughout the day. That's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? The death of our pride to celebrate someone else's success. The death of our own plans to help someone who's struggling. The death of of laziness and escapism. The death of, of lust by regular confession to others. These are the deaths, these are the self denials that Christ says must define those who follow him. Number two, self denial means this is the most important one becoming increasingly familiar with Jesus and increasingly estranged to self. If a neighbor you barely ever said hi to, or ever said hi to you, suddenly asked if you could mow their lawn while they were away for the summer, is that going to be a compelling favor? Not really, because there aren't many people who are going to sacrifice even slightly for someone they barely know. Maybe that is you, and, and good on you if it is. And the sad accusation that could be leveled at some Christians is that we resent Jesus' call to self-denial because he remains a functional stranger to much of our lives. The demands of the self weigh heavier than the demands of the Lord Jesus. The gain of the self, whatever that looks like for us, seem far more important. And we allow lesser things to loom so large in our lives that Jesus' demands often come as an intrusion rather than a welcome. What a sad thing. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The incentive to throw off hindering weights and disentangle ourselves from sin comes from one posture, a 
And that is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not just on the benefits his death brings to us. Not just on the heaven he has won for us, though yes, those two. Not just in the way he infuses purpose into our lives, but on he himself, his person, as he has revealed himself to us in his word. The disciples had been with Jesus at the time of this conversation for three years. They'd seen his authority over earthly rulers and demonic rulers. They'd seen him unconvinced at the outward religiosity of the Pharisees and teach again and again about the importance of an inward change of heart. They'd seen his tenderness to the sick and his eagerness to bless little children. They'd seen his patience with them as they constantly misunderstood his mission in person. And he had shown them the Father. Peter's response to Jesus, just previous to this, um, in typical Peter style, was massively misguided. But it was also understandable. He loved Jesus. Here's Thomas Watson. The illuminated soul is so much taken up with the glory and goodness of the Lord that it carries him out of himself to God and, as it were, estranges him from himself. It is not a stoical resolution, but a response to the love of God and the hope of glory which make him throw away the world and look contemptuously on all below so far as they are mere provision for flesh. How many of us have have reached that place of self-denial where it feels as if we're estranged from ourselves, so familiar with the glory and goodness of the Lord that we hardly care about what we want anymore. Our plans, we just hold them with a loose hand and there's, there's just way too many of us out there spending way too much time trying to find ourselves. What are my likes and my dislikes? What do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What kind of people do I and do I not want to associate with? Spending way too much time making sure other things and other people don't infringe on our carefully chosen path of life. What if Jesus' demands trigger any number of my conditions? What if Jesus' demands fall outside my identity and giftings profile? What if Jesus' demands make me, God forbid, anxious? What if I just don't want to do what Jesus wants me to do? And if we could, some of us would we rewrite this verse. So Jesus says, whoever wants to follow me must allow a little sliver of their life for me to come and live in. That's the kind of Jesus we want. But that's not who Jesus is and not what he says. If we can believe it, we have to believe it. Jesus actually knows what's best for us. He's our creator. He is 
both wise and more generous that we could possibly conceive of. And he comes to us, just as he did to Peter, and he asks, do you love me? Those words, man. Dare we ask ourselves those words this morning. But again, if we're functionally unacquainted with Jesus, we're going to find it very difficult to give up anything for him. We're going to find it very difficult to want to take up his cross and share in Golgotha's disgrace. If there's something else in our life that is weightier than friendship and obedience to Jesus, self-denial is going to seem excruciating. But the path to freedom and joy is, is to lay those weights aside. Finally, self-denial means being increasingly familiar with the weight of eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that is far beyond comparison. The last way to get self-denial is to remember that in the act of giving up, of letting go, whether that's an eye or a right arm or a sin or fear or many fears, we are investing in an eternal, imperishable, unchangeable glory. And this is a challenge for us because the things we can see and taste and touch seem in the moment to be the most real thing, the most important thing in the world. I can taste the food. I can experience the pleasure right now of whatever it is. How can enjoyment be found in the denial of that which in the moment seems so imminent? How can fallen Jesus be better than that? And the answer is that whatever those things, family, friends, things, time, comfort, they are temporary. They are good, but they're not ultimate. Not even close. And no wonder everyone's running around in a frenzy with massive credit card debt and regret at everything they haven't done and bucket lists that 70 or 80 years won't ever let them get through. That is a recipe for despair. And you see the despair as the likelihood of any kind of American dream is now crumbling at a rapid rate. Honestly, that's probably God's mercy to us. How many souls have been destroyed on the altar of the American dream? If you want to pick up a treasure, you have to put down the gravel you're carrying first. If you want to pick up the new clothes, you have to put down the rags. And if you're going to take up the cross, you have to lay down the self. We could list lots of examples of those who've given their lives heroically and get all fired up and leave here talking about how we're all going to give up our lives. But most of us don't have room for a cross in our lives, and it's killing our ability to trust and obey. That's why Jesus says the first cost associated with discipleship is a removal, a removal of self, then an addition, subtraction, then an addition, 
put down the self, take up the cross, then follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer, I think, succinctly lays out the paradox I've been trying to to capture between the weight and the welcome. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So what is hindering us from taking the cross this morning? What weights are we choosing to take on instead? And are they weights that will endure eternity? Let's pray. Lord, we need new eyes to see these things. We need our hearts that become so cool and callous through our idolatry, Lord, to be softened. Lord, we need new eyes to see your glory, to see the wonders of your person. Lord, forgive us for our negligence. Forgive us for the fact that our meditations on you and on your person in your word take up such a small part of our day. And we wonder why we're so worried and afraid And yet if we, like Joshua, could just linger in the tent of your presence that is now open and there's access for all of us, if we could just linger there in your presence, then we would not be afraid of anything else. So let us walk today in in the freedom of laying aside the weight of self and the joy of, of taking on the weight of the cross. Pray all this in your name.